Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 35. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. He has given it to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that for your glory and by your power, you might open it up to us, might speak to us in these moments. Cleanse your servant of all that is displeasing to you. Father, may you alone be glorified and may your truth alone be proclaimed. Through it might you build us up. So open our minds, soften our hearts, Enliven our souls for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. As goes the leader, so goes the people. The the truth of this idea is shown to us here in this passage. It's shown to us as it relates to protection and provision, the removal of protection and provision, then suffering, and then comfort and joy in the midst of suffering. Jesus is about to show his disciples uh, the deepest truths about suffering in this life. Does it have purpose and meaning? Is there something that gives us hope in the midst of great suffering? Is there any way in which we can see suffering as a good thing? And the answers to all of these questions converge upon the life and the person of Jesus Christ. It's only in him. It's only through him that we receive any answers to these questions relating to our suffering. In this passage, we are equipped 
to understand or begin to understand the reality of suffering in this life, the reality of suffering, but then also the reason for faith and comfort and joy in the midst of that suffering. So the reality of suffering and the reason for faith, comfort, and joy in the midst of that suffering. Let us go to this passage together and and consider it according to God's authority. We begin looking at this passage. We see that Jesus is referring to something that has already happened. He's referring to chapter 9, where he has sent out the disciples. He has sent them out as sheep in the midst of wolves, as he says there. He sent, he sent them out without provision. Uh, they had really nothing other than uh, the clothes on their back. Some commentators and scholars even think that they went out barefoot in chapter 9. And there's a couple of reasons for that that open up uh, an understanding of what's going on there in chapter 9. The first is that they, they went out with this appearance of earthly weakness. They, they went out almost looking like homeless uh, men. Not even a change of clothes or food for their journey. They were completely reliant upon the provision of others. And in this way, they were mirroring the appearance of Jesus in his earthly ministry. He had no form that people should regard him. Uh, He did not have sort of a a regal, royal appearance or, or an entourage that exuded power or authority. And yet... Uh, Because of his preaching, because of his healing, Jesus gained followers and a following, and people were very interested in what he was doing. The twelve who were sent out, likewise, were able to preach and proclaim the kingdom with power and authority. They were able to heal. They were able to cast out demons. Jesus asked them, did you lack anything? They, they, They said, no, we lacked nothing. Perhaps they were, in many ways, greeted as heroes with these displays of of power, even in the midst of their appearance of earthly weakness. They they mirrored the appearance of Jesus' weakness. The second thing that uh, this teaches us, or what chapter 9 teaches us, as they're sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, is that Jesus sends them out, but as we look back with hindsight, we know that there was a definite measure, though it was temporary, but a definite measure of protection and provision that was upon the disciples of Jesus. In other words, no harm was going to befall them, the sovereignty, the decree of God, no harm was going to befall them, and they would be provided for up until the time when Jesus' life was threatened. If his life was not going to be threatened, their life was not going to be threatened. So they could be sent out with this guarantee, in a sense, of provision and protection. They were going to uh, come back to, uh, to the Lord's presence, come back to Jesus and report all that they had done and seen. And this shows us in, in many ways that the kingdom of God is not going to advance through earthly power. It's going to advance through the proclamation of the kingdom. Jesus says, when I sent you out, did you lack anything? No, they said, we lacked nothing. But as we turn to verse 36, we see that there is going to be a change now. 
There's going to be a reversal in this situation. The disciples, when they go out into the world, and here Jesus is thinking about when he is going to send them out after the cross and the resurrection to go out on mission in the world, they are not to go out as they did in chapter 9. They are to go out with provision, with goods, with a change of clothes. There is no longer this guarantee of protection and provision. Use reason. Use common sense. Think about the kind of journey you're going on. Think about the kinds of things you will need to take with you and attempt to take as much as you can. We should ask why. Why has this situation changed? It would be nice, certainly, wouldn't it, if the apostles could say, after the cross of the the resurrection, we're going to go out into the world. It doesn't even matter what we have with us. We don't even need to take a change of clothes. We don't need to take a, a suitcase or a bag. We will be provided for. We will be protected. No harm will, be, will befall us. Guaranteed. It also would be nice, wouldn't it, if the church could say today that as we send out missionaries, now missionaries are not apostles, but perhaps we could uh, consider them existing sort of in the same stream of the mission of the church. You send out missionaries anywhere in the world. Uh, They don't need to raise support. They don't need to think about what they need to take with them. They will be provided for. They will be protected. That would be nice. The church could have that as a guarantee. But it doesn't. It doesn't. And it basically all comes down to the life of Jesus. As I mentioned before, these disciples were not going to see any harm come to them until harm was coming upon Jesus. His hour had not yet come. And thus they were able to be sent out to have this display of power, even in the midst of their appearance of weakness, to mirror the ministry of Jesus. But of course, Jesus' hour is now here. His time has come. You see other places in the Gospels where it says, uh, my time has not yet come. Jesus withdraws from them, especially in the Gospel of John. They're, they're trying to, to, to take him, and some are trying to make him king. Some are trying to capture him and kill him, stone him for blasphemy. But we read his hour has not, had not yet come. But now his hour has come. He shows this in verse 37. By quoting the very famous passage in the Old Testament, really perhaps in many ways the, the, the center of messianic prophecy, Isaiah 53. He quotes Isaiah 53. They were numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus says, it is necessary that this be fulfilled in me. The fulfillment of this is now drawing near. Normally when Old Testament passages are quoted... We pay attention not just to the explicit words that are quoted, but the surrounding context of that Old Testament passage. And here, of course, there is no exception. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks about the Messiah bearing the sins of others and making atonement for their sins. This is, of course, the the central tenet of the gospel message, that the Messiah uh, saves sinners. Sinners are reconciled to God through uh, the work, the exalted work of the Messiah as he bears sin. Jesus also quotes this verse in particular, though, to highlight something that is going on in, in this passage, what Jesus is, is attempting to show them, right? He was numbered with the transgressors. Why does Jesus quote this, and what is he teaching his disciples? People have puzzled over this. 
people have said, well, perhaps Jesus is saying to them, go get a bag, purse, and a sword, so that they have the appearance of perhaps just a, any other group of people, or a people who have this appearance, a ragtag group of sinners, right? They're, they're looters. They're going around trying to take whatever they can. That's not why Jesus says it. Others have thought he is numbered with the transgressors, has something to do with the, the thieves who will hang on his right and his left at his side when he is crucified. That's not what Jesus is saying either. In Isaiah 53, this verse or this phrase found at the end of the chapter, he was numbered with the transgressors, carries the idea of the Messiah being identified with rebels or with sinners. He's going to be judged in the eyes of the world as a sinner, as a menace, as a threat to society. And thus the followers, those closest to Jesus, are going to be shunned in the way that he is judged as sinners, and in that sense, made the object of scorn and hatred in the world. That's what Jesus is meaning when he's saying this. He was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, you all, you are going to be considered transgressors, menaces, threats to society, and you need to be ready to be treated as such. You'll become the object of scorn and hatred in the world. John chapter 15 John's account of the Last Supper, the words of Jesus, uh, reinforce this idea. He says there, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. Jesus is going to be judged as a sinner and die a sinner's death at the hands of wicked men. So those who go forth and who bear his name are going to bear the scorn of a world that is opposed to the proclamation that Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Uh, oftentimes in the world, what you see is an attempt to tone down the message of Jesus. Try and make him a, a helpful thinker, right? Put him alongside Gandhi or other spiritual giants in the history of the world. Make him a humanitarian, and in that way, his message becomes much more palatable. The proclamation that Christ is Lord, the proclamation that he is the God-man, the proclamation that only through him can sinners be reconciled to God. That is a message that the world hates. And that message has become the object of the world's scorn ever since. There's a, a couple of, of, of ways in which we need to, uh, to keep our minds centered around a, a couple of truths. It's, it's not as if the people of God... Uh, are so centrally the object of scorn and hatred that it's, it's constantly a battle out on the battlefield of this world, swords and shields and all of that, that we're constantly being uh, assaulted or anything like that. There's many ways in which we exist in this world and there is common grounds between the people of God and between those who are not. I mentioned this morning in my prayer that the law of God 
written on the heart of man. And even as we look around the world, we, we can see other people and we can say there is, there's goodness to this person or this is a good person. But whenever we make those judgments, we're, we're judging it on a human level. We need to remember that, especially in times like this, when we come before our God in, in worship and adoration, all of a sudden the, the, it, the game has changed a bit because we all stand together as sinful as with hearts that are wicked. We need to keep those truths side by side. We can make kinds of human judgments and seek to be good neighbors and seek to love those around us. Seek goodness and kindness and love in those who are not the people of God. But yet always remember that as it relates to our Creator, as it relates to our God, all of us fall so short of the righteous standards that He sets that we're sinners in need of redemption. And the proclamation that Christ is Lord is hated by the world, the system of the world, the underpinnings of this age. All of the apostles, save for John, and then, of course, Judas, who betrays the Lord, what will they face? Death for the gospel. We talked about last week uh, Peter, who will live his life under the, the humility, or in many ways the humiliation of his denying Jesus at the, the, the moment of truth, the, 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 that, that uh, fundamental denial of Jesus, of knowing him. No, I do not know the man. But in God's grace, in the grace of Christ, he strengthens and he restores Peter. Perhaps the greatest example of the restoration of Peter is that later on in his life, he will be crucified for the gospel, the very man who cowered when he thought of what Jesus was going through and and thought about the possibility that he might have to face that as well. Restored by God, strengthened by the grace of Christ, uh, brought to bear witness to Christ, and he pays uh, the ultimate price with his life. Jesus' protection is removed because his hour has come. Thus his apostles, though their suffering is not the same as Jesus' suffering, are appointed to suffer as they bear witness to the supremacy of the sufferings of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. That temporary provision, protection is gone. There is no more a guarantee of earthly well-being. The apostle Paul His ministry was in many ways centered around this truth, his suffering and how it bore witness to the supremacy of Christ's suffering. Colossians chapter 1, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now there's nothing lacking in the work of Christ in terms of its sufficiency to save. What Paul means there, what he's talking about is the proclamation of Christ going forth into the world so that Christ is put on display in a sense through Paul's proclamation that Christ has been crucified and that is how you might be reconciled to God. Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, it was before your eyes, to the Galatians, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They did not see the cross with their eyes. Paul's point is, I came and proclaimed Christ to you. And there, the cross was publicly put on display in that sense. 
Paul even says that the scars, the marks on his body, are like the marks of Christ. Galatians 6, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, because his sufferings pointed to the greater suffering of Jesus Christ. Paul says, uh, Five times I was lashed by Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, he says. I was adrift at sea. I was in constant danger. Dangers of nature, dangers of other people. But he says, in all of these things, he is content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when he is weak, then he is strong. Paul says that he, as he goes around proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the gospel, Jesus is put on display. The suffering of Jesus is put on display in his body. Proclamation was central to, uh, to Paul's ministry. He says elsewhere, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How are they to hear without a preacher? Someone who brings the word, the word of the gospel, the word of hope to the ends of the earth. So ultimately, Jesus is saying, just as he is about to suffer, so they will suffer. They should plan for it. They should understand that suffering is going, to be, is going to come. They should be ready to be met with hardship, persecution, pain, and loss. That was a guaranteed reality for the apostles. And it's a guaranteed reality for the church of Jesus Christ. True enough, especially in our culture, there will be few who are asked to give or to pay the price that the apostles did while they gave witness to the greater death of Christ, to give their life. And that's something to be thankful for. We should also remind ourselves, though, that so many, even in today's world, are giving their life. They're giving their life for the truth of the gospel. And we should also remember that if there's nothing in your life that you have deemed you must leave behind, nothing in your life that you must sacrifice in service to Christ, then you have not adequately applied the call of the gospel to your life. At some point, and for some reason... There will be something that you must not do. There will be something that you must give up. There will be something that you must sacrifice in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Many things. Many things. At many times. Moreover, there is the reality here of the removal of guaranteed protection. God does not guarantee that no earthly harm will befall you. This life will be littered with ugly realities that we would rather not face, but we must. It will be littered with pain that we would rather not feel, but God is refining us through it. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. Be ready to be met with hardship and suffering. I will not guarantee you safe passage, for it may be that you will be asked to walk in the shadow of my suffering in order to witness to it. That's what the apostles indeed had to do. Many people puzzle about whether Jesus is making a commentary on the, the ownership of weapons here. That is certainly not the main thrust of what is going on. The purse, the bag, the sword, they're all working together to show that what they are about to face in their life is hardship, persecution, and pain. But in response, we may just quickly say a couple of things. The first is self-defense and just war are perfectly compatible with a biblical worldview. 
But Jesus is not telling them to take up arms in defense of the kingdom of God here. He's not saying, take up arms and uh, become a literal earthly army for the sake of the gospel and my kingdom. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the apostles speaking about things in just the opposite way of that mindset. Don't go about engaging in vigilante justice, just as we read in Romans chapter 12. Leave room for the wrath and the vengeance of God. They encourage faithful, quiet living. Live at peace with all so far as it depends on you. Trust the human institutions that God has given, like government and law enforcement. And Christians can and should involve themselves in those institutions. But to take judgment into our own hands, to become the arm of God's justice in this world, that is not what has been given to the church. We see uh, religious groups mostly uh, associated with Islam in this world, thinking that that is what their God has called them to do. We have not been called to do that. There's proof of this here in our passage where it seems the disciples take the words of Jesus overly literally. They go and they, 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 it seems that they find two swords as quickly as they can. In other words, they're trying to, to, to find what do we have and let's take stock of the weapons we have. Jesus, here are two swords. And verse 38 is more of a rebuke than anything. That's enough. In other words, they have taken the teaching of Jesus once again and they have bound it to the earth. Their mindset, their uh, earthbound mentality has them trying to gather up swords, but that is not Jesus' intention for them. His intention is to teach them about the reality of coming suffering. And in the remainder of our passage, he gives them a ground, a reason for faith, comfort, and hope in the midst of their suffering. We come to one of the, perhaps one of the most poignant displays of the human suffering of Jesus. He rebukes the disciples. He withdraws to the Mount of Olives uh, to pray. We should note that as he, he knows that Judas is going to betray him, he is not avoiding Judas. He knows that he is about to be arrested. He's willingly going to the cross. He's willingly going down the road that has been appointed to him. But he goes to prayer. He knows that he needs communion with his Father and with the Spirit if he is going to be strengthened to face what he must. Jesus is, of course, himself God, and he cannot sin. So you need to keep that in mind. But as we think about the human suffering of Jesus in passages like this, Uh, Even though Jesus cannot fall into temptation, nevertheless, the temptation is real. And the path that he walks is filled with intense agony. The desire to not go through the pain that lays before him. In a certain way, Jesus' temptations are worse than ours because he has to go to the outer limits of temptation. He feels the fullest effect of temptation because he is sinless. So we must be careful to to remember that just because Jesus is true God, it does not mean that he does not feel the power, the strength of temptation. He does, and it is real. Moreover, he does not just feel the far reaches of temptation, but he knows that he is appointed to feel the deepest separation from his Father, the strongest outpouring of his wrath that will ever be felt, a suffering that is unlike anything that will ever be experienced. The antithesis of human life 
Human beings, human creatures made for communion with God, made to be joined in a loving communion bond with God. And as Jesus bears the fullest force of the wrath of God and the enmity that God has against sin, he goes through something that is unlike anything that will ever be experienced. When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, he means the cup of God's wrath. Often in scripture, the wrath of God is pictured as being a cup or poured out as in a bowl. But he is appointed to drink the wrath of God down to the dregs. He will do it in the place of sinners. That unworthy sinners might receive the blessing that flows from his sacrifice. Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we, saved, shall we be saved from the wrath of God. The reality of God's wrath makes Jesus sweat like drops of blood here. This is not the, the medical condition where your, uh, your blood vessels burst and you're actually sweating blood, which can happen, but rather that Jesus was in such agony over the extent of his suffering that it's like uh, receiving a cut in the way the blood flows down. That's how much he was sweating. He is pouring sweat because of what he is about to go through, because the agony of what awaits him. No one, including Jesus, would want to endure what laid before him. But his greater joy was in obeying his Father. The greater joy was in the glory that awaited him on the other side. And in there he's teaching us. He's teaching us about the goodness uh, of suffering. That we can even think of suffering as a good thing as God refines us through it. So he prays, not my will. Not my will, but yours. He asks God more than once to remove the cup of wrath. But instead, his father gives him an angel to strengthen him. Pretty good indication that he's still going to go through it. And something, strength from on high. We come up against the limits of our human understanding when we try to think about the experience of Jesus here. What he endures is something we will never be able to fully comprehend or understand or certainly experience. He endures the wrath of God in a way that is sufficient to save the world. The canons of Dort talk about the, the limitless sufficiency of the death of Christ. Just as in temptation, he goes to the limits of the wrath of God. He comes through it on the other side. He breaks through into the heavens so that blessings might flow to sinners. Look at his suffering, look at his sorrow as he weeps, he sweats like blood. Look at his anguish as he asks for the cup to pass from him. These are things we cannot understand fully, but it brings us to faith, comfort, and hope in the midst of suffering. The problem of evil is brought up by many people as proof of God's inexistence or proof that God cannot be loving. They'll say, look at the evil, the suffering, the nonsensical things that happen in the world. How could you believe in a good God in the midst of all that? How could you have faith in the midst of all that? How could you praise him in the midst of all that? There's a sense here in which we confess the limits of our own knowledge. We don't have an encyclopedic scientific answer that takes away the suffering that people go through. We don't have the, some silver bullet that zaps their pain or erases their losses or reverses their suffering. 
But here is what we do hold. Here is what we do proclaim. Here is what we do cling to. The truth of the cross. The cross of Christ. We hold the truth that Jesus, the God-man, has gone to the limits of human suffering. He has experienced and gone through something that none of us ever could understand or experience. He drinks the wrath of God down to the dregs. Our God is our Savior. Our God is our Savior. Talked about how terrible this experience must be. Only Jesus breaks through these limits. We see it in the disciples here. They pass out from sorrow. This has been a long day for the disciples. They're passed out from sorrow. The sorrow of Jesus is greater, reminding us once again that human work is always going to pale in comparison to the work of Christ. He follows through to the end. He sees it through, even as those around him cannot see it through. So God is not a God who erases suffering. The gospel is not a gospel that guarantees protection. But he is a God, and it is a gospel that guarantees salvation through suffering. Salvation through suffering, rooted in the salvation through the suffering of Christ. No matter what your particular trial or challenge or suffering is, an inexplicable death in the family, someone dying perhaps through unspeakable tragedy, sickness or affliction that plagues you or a loved one, perhaps for many years, perhaps it's an inability to square with all the sufferings of this world, perhaps it's the worries or the anxieties of this life that continue to drag you down, lacking an answer as you think about the abuse of the defenseless, the strong in the world beating the weak, the small enduring unspeakable pain, the triumph, the seeming triumph of evil in so many circumstances. We don't have a magic formula for making this go away, but here is what we do know and here is what we do proclaim. At Gethsemane and at the cross, we see the only one who deserved no punishment, none, undergoing the greatest and farthest extent of wrath and punishment, worse than any of us could fathom. And to do so, so that sinners might be given perfect and blessed enjoyment and life, eternal life with God. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is that so we as sinners might be saved, reconciled to God, given eternal life and blessedness. If that does not comfort you, you must meditate on that more. You must meditate on these truths. All of this provides us with the faith to face what comes from God's hand. Faith to say, to say it in the shadow of the cross, not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. Say that prayer in the shadow of the cross. It gives us comfort, not the comfort of the sentimentality of this therapeutic age, but the comfort of being reconciled to our Creator. True comfort. And it gives us hope. We were saved in hope, as Romans 8 says. Hope, knowing that what we do not yet see will yet be. We cannot look around this age and place our hope and our trust and our faith in this age. We were saved in hope, knowing that God has provided us with an inheritance that we do not see, knowing that we have something guaranteed to us that we cannot take in with our eyes now. It does not come out of thin air. It comes through the incomprehensible, wrath-absorbing work of Christ who dies in the place of sinners. 
to save sinners. We live in the light of this truth. We follow Jesus in the path of obedience. We trust that he gives us strength according to our needs. We do not deny the reality of suffering, but we do proclaim the reason for faith, comfort, joy, and hope in the midst of suffering. And let's pray. Father, we are amazed by your love and the love of Christ through which we're reconciled to you. We pray that you would sustain us in the midst of all you have appointed for us. Father, we thank you uh, that you have given us such a sure and certain hope. We look to our Lord always as this world and this life lies before us. I pray that uh, you, by your Spirit, would comfort us through all of these things. So many of us who are filled with, with worries and anxieties and doubts. Father, may we see the, the agony of our Savior and uh, that He endured all things for the joy that was set before Him. May that be the root, the ground of all that we do in this life. And from it, uh, may we walk the path of obedience. So ever praying in the shadow of the cross, not my will, but yours be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.